When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been bringing you big ideas in small, concentrated doses from some of the most creative thinkers and doers around. On Think Again, we take ourselves out of our comfort zone, surprising my guests and me, your host, with unexpected conversation starters from our interview archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with William Shatner, the William Shatner. He created the role of Captain James T. Kirk on the original Star Trek and won two Emmys and a Golden Globe for his portrayal of Denny Crane on The Practice and Boston Legal. He's also written nearly 30 best-selling books of fiction and nonfiction, and released two awesome albums of music with the artist Ben Folds and others, including Henry Rollins, who's been on this show. His newest book, Zero G, co-authored with Jeff Rovin, is a science fiction terrorism thriller set in the year 2050. It begins with an unnaturally powerful tsunami that destroys most of the coast of Japan and follows FBI field agent Samuel Lord as he attempts to unravel the mystery. Welcome to Think Again, William. Thank you. That was a long introduction, but very, very well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. I want to talk about your book, but before we do that, as I am a longtime Shakespeare fan, and I know you started out in Shakespeare, I wanted to come out of left field and ask you whether you have a favorite character, play, speech, etc. of Shakespeare. Any, any favorite thing of Shakespeare? I wondered if we could start there. A favorite uh, Shakespeare character? Character, oh. play, speech, moment, um, anything. Well, I, I guess I have to point at uh, Henry V, in which I understudied Christopher Plummer, who was playing Henry V at Stratford many, many years ago. And in repertory, especially this repertory at uh, Stratford, you open a play, and then uh, the next morning, after you've opened, you start rehearsals on a new play, and then you do that for four weeks, and then uh, open that, and maybe a third and a fourth, so that the understudy rehearsals would be delayed until you finished opening new plays. And about the third or fourth day, I was asked to go on stage as the understudy because Chris was ill for a, a moment, and they asked me to go on, and I had never, not only had I never rehearsed it, I never said the words out loud, but I had been, <laughs> I'd been drilling myself uh, for some reason, and I speculate about this in my one-man show. Why did I drill those words so so emphatically? Because nobody ever goes on for an understudy. Right. No, I've never been in an understudy uh, relationship where somebody went on for me or I went on for somebody else, right. except in this one instance in which I had never spoken the words out loud. And then I went on stage in front of 2,500 people and, and critics and all that. And uh, to some How did it feel? Was it terrifying? How, how did it, how did oh, it go? Uh, <laughs> no, I was on a wave. I, I don't recall being terrified. I recall I've looked at pictures of Laird Hamilton coming down a, a wave, at, uh, uh, you know, a 70-foot wave. Okay. And I've got to think that he had 
the same feeling as I did. <laughs> this this thing pursuing you, you're riding, and and you can't lose your confidence because the moment you doubt, you're it's over. So so that's how that's how it is for you. You feel that you mustn't you must keep self doubt completely at bay because I've often thought that, uh, you know, for me anyway, you can feel the self doubt and then say. Oh well, you know, there that is, and still do your thing, you know, and just having acknowledged. Well, it. that's that's good if you can do that. <laughs> if you can say, oh well, there's self doubt, there's fear, and there is uh, dread, and there. Oh, look at that! There's hysteria coming my way. <laughs> right, right. And then you know somehow deal with it and press on. For me, in life, denial is perfect. <laughs> just, just deny the pain, deny the experience, denial. Oh, that's It hasn't wonderful. happened, it's not going to happen, I don't even want to think about it, and I'll die before I, I, I experience that. And eventually it all goes away anyway. So I'm half Jewish, and so for all semi or fully Jewish, but, but yeah, Jason, yeah, go ahead. Jason, you should be in denial about that. <laughs> well, I was going to say that Woody Allen gave us all permission to sort of recognize the terror and the anxiety and simply to move forward and, and turn it into something, I don't know, if not sexy, at least acceptable. Uh, in his case, turn it into a movie. <laughs> a career, yeah. Um, so... You've had an amazingly varied career. You're, you're best known to the general public probably for the Star Trek films, but you've been doing a million things, and, and you've been writing for years and years now. How did writing enter the picture for you? Were, you know, at what point did you decide to start taking writing seriously, if that's the right way to put it? Well, uh, I, uh, uh, the written word is where everything begins and ends. I've always known that. So I've always written in one manner or another. I love poetry. I love the usage of words. Uh, in fact, when I was uh, just starting out, I wrote some television half-hour plays, which the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the, called the CBC in Canada, which was the equivalent of, say, NBC here, bought. And I cast one of those shows, a girl, and eventually married her. She became the mother of my children. So I've been writing a long time. But the perhaps more measured and important works started when there was a strike by some unions while I was making a film, and uh, there was nothing I could do. I had to sit around and wait for the strike to be over. So I started writing. I, I gave myself the premise of a policeman in space. Okay. I had done a police series. So uh, I begat 10 books, and uh, it became 10 books, a year, a year series, and a movie. So I've noticed, you know, I, I saw, you know, looking through your work, and by the way, I really love those, those albums that you did with Ben Folds. They're, they're really cool. That album was called Has Been. It was, I really look at that uh, That was well. It's wonderful. It's and um, I, I, I'm just noticing that in both the writing and in the music, you're collaborating, and you seem to enjoy collaborating. I mean, acting is a collaborative art as well. Do you find that you prefer to create with other people as opposed to uh, in solitude? So science fiction is um, it's a strange form. You're imagining a plot and people, but it's also littered with scientific possibilities, either imaginative possibilities or possibilities that exist in the laboratory that may come into existence years from now. Right. And you have to be acquainted with all that, and it's a very esoteric acquaintanceship to know science intimately, to be able to, to write about it, know science intimately. Jeff Rovin is uh, this wonderful writer who, who has that knowledge. So 
between the two of us, me working on the more emotional aspects and the plot, and him working on the scientific aspects, we've created a lovely novel filled with scientific possibilities, both that take the plot along or that are added like little diamonds that that you'll read and may even smile at, uh, new political unions that couldn't possibly be right in our uh, ear, but in 50 years might very well come to be. Yeah. That sort of thing is, is great fun. What are, so in the new book, in Zero G, I mean, I think I gave a enough of an overview of the plot. I don't want to give too much away. It's definitely a fun and interesting thriller uh, set in 2025. What are some of your favorite moments or ideas in the book? Um, anything you'd want to kind of highlight for people who haven't read it? Well, we have a character there. Uh, we took from the present-day publicity about people who feel they've been born in the wrong body. So we named that character Edzilla. And Edzilla, instead of going for an operation, uh, changing his or her sex, is able to do it by will. Uh, that's totally an imaginative concept taken from the ongoing controversies that are uh, in our day and age. But someday in the future, there'll be a medical implant whereby by an act of will, you can change your sex. Yeah, I, I found that really fascinating. First of all, Edzilla's parents, uh, I guess, genetically altered her either at birth or pre-birth. Um, right. And so that raises some interesting ethical issues, you know, like about we, we are going to come to a point, no doubt, in the near future when parents actually may have some control. Well, I, I think with enough instrumentation that can look into that aspect of a, of an unborn baby, since we're on the verge, and in fact, not on the verge, we're genetically altering, but we're on the verge of genetically altering almost anything easily, why wouldn't it be possible to go inside, even just at concept, right. and alter the genetic structure of the unborn child? It is happening when they see diseases that are uh, abnormal, why couldn't you do almost anything? Well, let me ask you this. Where, you know, if you were in a position to sort of start all over and have kids and you had sort of unlimited <laughs> genetic alteration power, would, would you take advantage of it or what would the limits be for you personally? Well, you see what you're addressing there is a real moral problem. <laughs> right. How much do you alter genetically? That goes for food as well, by the way. Right. GMOs are apparently healthy. They're allowing us to feed 7 billion people that shouldn't be on Earth in the first place. By being able to feed 7 and maybe 10 to 11 billion people in the very near future, we, like lemmings, have destroyed our environment. Right. And we're only going to destroy it further. So we've genetically altered crops to avoid disease. So the limitation is not only on what food is, but how many people we can procreate. And Chinese tried to do it by limiting it to one person, but that didn't work because now their culture uh, didn't want girls, they wanted boys. And so a whole human aspect to something that was going to be really good, a scientific breakthrough that offered humanity the hope of feeding everybody and having no no starvation, morphs into more people and more pollution and uh, the end of the world. <laughs> right. The end of the world is nigh because of the number of people on Earth. 
And how do you reduce the number of people on earth without getting into mass murder or altering uh, the baby in vitro to not being able to have any children? I mean, the morality that, that this brings up is the springboard for so many science fiction novels, and that's what we're... That's what uh, I'm, I'm doing. Indeed. Well, in, your, in Zero G, there is at least a science station on the moon. There are, you know, fairly complex space stations. So, I mean, that, you know, at least Elon Musk with his, you know, SpaceX Mars, Mars mission, mission seems to think that that may be one viable solution is well, getting is humans no off way, Earth. There is no way that human beings can colonize any place else other than than Earth, because the the time it takes to reach an Earth-like planet that has uh, the proximity to its star and many of the values here, which includes this thin skin of atmosphere and the temperature range and the oxygen, the oxygen proportion came about by evolution when chlorophyll uh, started. I mean, it, you go back, one thing brings on another. Right. So that by evolving here on earth we human beings have arrived at uh, our reptilian brain and our complex forehead that evolved over millions of years how the heck you can't live underground on mars even if you could you can't that's we we belong in sunlight and that sunlight is thousands of years in the future even if you could go at a rocket ship near the speed of light which you can't it's going to take thousands of years. We have forgotten. We've got things on the books, laws on the books, uh, understandings with other nations on the books 50 years ago that we've forgotten what they were. Well, you know, oh, that's right. We made a, an agreement 50 years ago. We've forgotten in 50 years what that agreement was or what we were supposed to do. Or Imagine going 1,000 years on a, on a voyage and somebody saying 500 years from now, why are we here? What are we? Where are we going? <laughs> right. You know, the, geez, I've forgotten. What? Uh, let's look back in the library and dusting off five hundred years. Oh, that's right. We're on our way to Centaurus. Well, uh, but why? Why are we going there? Maybe if they let's turn around. Maybe if they can figure out wormhole travel and get us to some exoplanets in you know ten minutes, then uh, right, then we'll be in that situation. But uh, exactly, I, I, and and that's theoretically possible as well. Maybe, yeah. I mean, Stephen Hawking seems to think so. But uh, so, okay, I think that brings us to the second part of the show where we watch these short surprise interview clips. I don't know what they are. I've not seen them. So I want to, you know, we're going to have a genuinely spontaneous conversation. The first one, which is by Ryan Holiday, who's a entrepreneur and author. So, but wait a minute, Jason. This is thought-provoking? Is that what the idea is? Ideally, it is thought-provoking, and if it's not, then it's my job to provoke. We'll make it thought-provoking. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So so we'll both watch, and, and then afterward, we'll talk. There's a wonderful Bill Walsh quote about ego. He says, you know, ego is when self-confidence becomes arrogance, self-assertiveness, becomes reckless abandon and so forth. He's, say, he's saying it's it's sort of past the point of any reasonable utility, right? Confidence is great, arrogance is not great. Or Cyril Connolly is saying ego, like cancer is sort of an over-assertion of cells. 
And that's sort of what I see ego is. It's, it's great to believe in yourself. The problem is when your belief in yourself is not based on anything real. And so that's the enemy of, of trying to do basically anything that requires interacting with other people, right? If you're a creative and you're not able to take feedback because your, your ego is either so strong or you're not able to take feedback because you don't care what anyone thinks, your work's not gonna get any better. If you don't care about your audience, you don't understand who they are and what's going on in their life because you lack empathy, which is another symptom of ego, your work is gonna suffer. You can't work with other people because you're, you have to be the, you're selfish and you have to be the center of attention of all times. You're not gonna have a, a team around you. So it, it basically makes anything that we're trying to do harder than it already is. I guess I wanted to I wanted to get at you know the old phrase um, fake it till you make it right and and I don't know whether that advice rings true to you but the idea that at a certain point in your career like when you're starting out and you're doing a bunch of new things and you're stretching yourself outside of your comfort zone as you kind of said earlier you have to be sort of in denial push down any doubt and just kind of in a way, bluster forward, perhaps. But he's he's saying that that's kind of a dangerous state of affairs. I mean, that, uh, if I'm if I'm reading that right. Well, let me first of all correct what not correct, but add to what I said about denial. I was half joking about denial, but indeed, as a performer, and I was talking specifically about being on stage and stage fright and all those the unknowns, or a uh, I, I'm a pilot, for example, and I remember when I soloed in a Cessna and I was making a turn by myself for the first time, the shadow of the windshield crossed my face, and I looked up with a great start thinking something was coming at me. It was just sh the shadow of the windshield. I was so afraid of what I was doing. I was up in the air at 1,500 feet. I didn't know what I was doing. Now, if you panic, God knows what will happen. So you need, like a test pilot, to control that panic, and like an athlete in a big game, use it so that you, you extend your, your faculties to, to their limit. Right. Some people can do it by combining the use of those nerves. Some people say, I'm not going to even face those nerves. I'm going to focus on what it is I have to do and suppress anything else. Both work, I think. But if you talk about ego, then what this gentleman is describing, ego and, and trying to do something that somebody else has never done or that you've never done, he starts off with ego and the need for the self-confidence and the feeling that I can do it. But then he paints a picture of somebody who's so egotistical that he doesn't listen to anybody else. Like, uh, you, hey, watch your ego because you're about to step off the precipice. Right. <laughs> so you might say, oh, well, that's where the precipice is. You can still be filled with ego. I've got the, I've got the kite in my hands and I'm going to step off the precipice just point me to where the precipice is if you don't mind and I've got the ego that I will sail this kite in space uh, but just uh, help me with the, help me get to the precipice you can have ego an overwhelming overweening right. ego what, what what kind of a mind would get in a spaceship and go to Mars for the first time <laughs> who would do that right except somebody who thought I don't care if I live or die, I'm going to make this adventure. The reality of Columbus sailing a ship over the edge of the earth, the reality is 
that he knew the earth was curved or he heard the earth was curved. But there were many of his crew who thought the earth was flat. You sail long enough, you fall over the edge. They were on the edge of a precipice. Right. They thought, or certainly Columbus thought, screw it. I'm going forward and I'm taking the risk of all these other people's lives because I think we're going to find the spices. And that I think that's what I wanted to get at. You know, what he, what he said was that, you know, you shouldn't you sort of shouldn't overestimate your ability, but when you are going into the unknown, you don't know what's going to happen. But no Jason, yeah. Jason, yeah, yeah. you don't even need a grand adventure. What about a relationship? What if you think right. I'm going to go out I'm going to go out I'm going to ask that girl for a date. Right. Well, right. if you're shy, if your basic nature is shy and you feel unworthy and she's so pretty and she's so, uh, you, you think that that's above, and you suppress all that and you venture out onto this flat earth on the edge of a precipice, you're going to ask for a date. Yeah. You have to suppress all the, the feelings of inferiority and, and, and think, I'm, I'm okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be her well, equal. And, and not only that, but the fact that people that anybody gets married knowing as little as anybody else knows about anybody else when at the point at which they get married no matter how well they know each other they don't they don't know anything that's right you know <laughs> they, th that's yeah. exactly right they and i'm i'm one of your few authorities <laughs> who can attest to that very fact you don't know right. anybody that you marry until you've been married uh, a length of time yeah even then strange aspects reveal themselves. Right, and so, I mean, to go into that kind of adventure, which people do over and over again, certainly requires, if not ego, at least some kind of suspension of disbelief, you know? Well, see, now you're, you're in the area of suspension of disbelief, that you're okay, you can do this, this is worthwhile, <laughs> and your mother and father say, uh, son, Jason, <laughs> don't marry that girl. Right. And you say, Dad, I'm doing it. Right. And your dad says, all right, it's your life. Okay, don't come to me. And uh, sometime later, you ring your dad and say, Dad, you were right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, maybe he'll be right, maybe he won't, but you know. And maybe he'll be yeah. wrong because he's got his own prejudices. And, and he doesn't know this girl any more than you do. So you can see how complex the picture is without painting a psychopath. Yeah, yeah. Who says, "Don't talk to me. Don't run. I know everything and I'm uh, and we we've heard some of those psychopaths say, "Don't talk to me. I'll fix it. Uh, I alone can fix I it." I believe I was listening to just such a psychopath two nights ago. Well, there you yeah. are. So and that that I I I don't admire. But there are people uh, whose core knowledge right of something is so profound that they say, "Look, you don't know what I'm talking about." whether it's higher maths or astrophysics or or this relationship. You don't know what I know. Right. And I therefore I'm going ahead with my ego. I think I'm right and you're wrong. Those people who have been right and you were wrong were the people who people who explored all those new ventures. Mm -hmm. They're the creative, productive human beings who've lived individually, isolated individually over the generations, one or two or 10 people in a generation. 
Right. I've made these steps into the unknown that advised against it by everybody. Well, you hear these kind of things like about, um, for example, Stanley Kubrick, right, who is undeniably one of the great directors, right? But allegedly, he was just, you know, completely, he mapped out his entire production, didn't want to hear from anybody. Actors were essentially tools Props. in his hands. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and you, you know, you can stand aside and you can look at that and say, okay, that's bad uh, or he might have learned more but it's not but, bad yeah. it's but it's not bad yeah and it's a perfect example right a director of a film has a vision right and his vision may be I thought no uh, uh, you know those shoes you need to tie you need to tie the laces on the shoes that's my vision right the uh, the wardrobe person as well you know they're they're made so the shoe laces are untied I don't care my vision right is tie the shoelaces as incidental as that, that's the vision. Why shouldn't that be ego? Sure. Why should the wardrobe mistress have a vision that uh, supersede the directors? Yeah, and I think it's probably true also, and you've worked with many directors, that people have just different styles. Some are more authoritarian and, and, and always in charge of everything, and some are probably, like, I know, but Jason, more collaborative. But Jason, it has to do with the vision. Yeah. A director may have a vision... And every aspect, like, why would a painter say to you, um, okay, uh, go in and <laughs> right. put a few dabs uh, of some color on my painting. It's okay. Sure. He's got the vision. Right. He's right. painting the whole picture. That's what that kind of director would do. Other directors say, well, it doesn't matter. Tie the shoelaces. Don't tie the shoelaces. Uh, I'm cutting above it anyway. And that's their vision anyway. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. So you, it's hard to argue what is ego and what is uh, uh, psychopathic? Right, right. Yeah, what is ego in the healthy sense of sort of knowing what you're doing and knowing why? Right. Is yeah. there anything healthy about ego? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it seems so. I mean, well, yeah, because <laughs> most people, you know, what did the first person say, look, uh, we've just come out of the tree, let's head north. Right. And the evolution of mankind began. Some individuals said, that's, I, you know, I'm tired of sleeping on the tree here. Let's lie on the ground. It seems much more comfortable. Yeah, but you'll get eaten. I think I'll, I'll be alert enough to hear the tiger coming. <laughs> yeah, it's called leadership, basically. It's called leadership. That's exactly right. And how can right. you lead with a group of people? It's complex, my friend. And this guy telling us that the ego then leads you into uh, psychiatry is, <laughs> as I think, Interesting. incorrect. Okay, so let's leave it at that assessment. And let's move on, since our time is a, is a little limited, to the next surprise video. And that's Nikhil Goyal. He's an education expert. All right. The, the statistics show that bullying is a major, major problem in most American schools. And what they find is that in school, schools have a number of different qualities. And one of them is the anti-democratic governing structure. Uh, if you look at most American high schools, for example, they are gargantuan mammoth institutions. They have thousands upon thousands of kids uh, uh, walking through the hallways every day. Uh, and what, what happens as a result of this, and this is not necessarily the fault of, of teachers or even just the people in that school building, when you have such a large student body and you don't have 
uh, you have large class sizes, there's not enough time for students and teachers to have really strong, authentic, and genuine relationships. And students, basically what happens is they don't have any relationships with their with fellow peers and, and students at a really rich and authentic level. And so when students feel that they have no power or no agency in their school experiences, what often happens is something called cliques arise. So if students feel that they have to wield power and get control within themselves and within their ranks. And so cliques is, are one of the major phenomenons in, in American schools where they create basically power structures within the student body themselves. I actually want to start in a sort of oblique way and then come to the bigger ideas here. I wanted to start with like, you know, let us take a trip in the way back machine to Canada when you were a kid. Were there bullies in your school? Were you a bully? Were you bullied? Was there was that a thing in your that you dealt with? Uh, well, you want you want to bring this specifically to my yeah, experience? Why not? Bullying in I, I want to start, well, I mean, I just find that it's sometimes helpful to go from the particular to the general and, it, and a little more colorful. I'm happy to, uh, right. yeah. Well, when I went to uh, grade school and maybe even as far as high school, I was brought up in Montreal, Canada. Okay. And I'm Jewish. And... Uh, being Jewish in the milieu that I was in uh, was unusual. And so I was attacked a lot as a kid for being Jewish. And I had fights every day. It was more than one guy at a time. And crowds of kids uh, gathered around yelling, fight, fight, fight. And I'd be the one in the fight trying to handle one, if not two, and sometimes three kids my size, my age. And I, I had fights all the time. And one bully I remember in particular who was, there were places where coal was dumped into the furnaces. So they were raised like two feet above the ground. And so they provided a place, maybe four foot square, that was like a crowning place. So somebody would stand on this and be the bully and then they'd be trying and get you off. That was part of the game to see who could stand on the highest place, the longest. Part of a bullying campaign. But that's my experience about being bullied, okay? I was bullied all the time. Now... I mean, just looking back, do you feel... I mean, not that anyone would wish that on their child, but did you become, like, tough as a result of that, or was that... Well, yeah. that's, that's an interesting yeah. aspect. You know, wish on your child is an interesting phrase. You wish only the best for your child. Kindness, eagerness, ambition, uh, softness, delightful, pink... Uh, lots of food, you know, soft bed, good friends. <laughs> right. You wish they would have that. But what does that make? Right. What kind of a child does that make? When you talk about bullying, it seems to me you need to look at life around you. You look at other animals living in concert with each other. Look at a wolf pack. Every social animal that I can think of chimpanzees as close to human beings, apes, all the great apes, in concert, when they live in concert, there's one or two alpha males, or uh, in elephants, maybe it's a matriarchal, and the alpha female. And they alone, at least in the wolves, they alone breed, and their children are alpha children, and they're handled, even the insects, bees, think of it. Most, maybe all, aspects of life living together, there's a dominant individual. But at the same time, don't we have to say that like humans, while we are like other species, 
we're differentiated by the fact that we have a prefrontal cortex, we organize into societies, we have the option to make decisions. We organize into societies in which there's a leader. <laughs> if we elect them or they're appointed or they assume it, there's I know, always but I a guess leader. What I'm there are leaders and there are followers. Do the leaders achieve leadership by bullying? That what I'm saying is that we we don't it doesn't necessarily we don't have to organize things as kill or be killed. That we are different from other animals in that for example, we you and I are not going out every day and like macheteing people. Now there are humans that are doing that, but No, but you how did you get this podcast? Well, not by macheteing anyone. <laughs> I mean, well, not literally, <laughs> but did you push somebody aside who might have had a podcast? I mean, not you. Not not literally, but um, well, obviously. not literally, <laughs> but somebody could have had a job, but you got it. Right, right, right. Good point. Good point. Um, I love making a good point. No, it's 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 good. So you know, going back to what he was saying in terms of power structures and how they create bullying i mean regardless of whether we think that this is a natural uh, state well no not regardless that's the point okay the point is it seems to be a natural evolvement evolution in in a in a group that if the group has to do something other than just sit around and go into the ocean and and toast marshmallows by the campfire then but then somebody's brought the marshmallows and somebody's made the sticks so in every group that needs to go to do something, go someplace. There's always a leader. Let's go there. No, let's go. Uh, okay, let's go seven steps in that direction. See what happens. Yeah, I guess where I, I guess where I want to, I'm, you know, and we're not debating. I mean, I guess where I, but where I, where but I we are. differ. Well, where I differ is maybe we are. Where I well, differ is just using the word differ. <laughs> where you but, differ, William. We are not. I. It's not a zero sum game. Like we're not, nobody's keeping score, right? Uh, that's not. I don't. I'm not trying to win the the podcast. But you, I am. You are okay. I right. win. So no, what yeah. I'm saying is like leadership and bullying aren't necessarily the same thing, are they? Ah, I mean now, leadership and bullying are not the same thing. So where do you go? Where do you, where do you, where? How do you mitigate all those things? So let me tell you what what I think about that. I think we need to teach from birth on empathy. We need to teach the ability from one human being to the other to place yourself in that person's running shoes, baby shoes, uh, spikes, riding shoes. We need to everybody to say, listen to what this person is saying and crying out for help to be listened to. Look at my experience here. Look at what you've trod on my toes, and that hurt. Let me explain to you this hurt. You've crushed my toes, and that hurts. And I don't want to hurt you, nor maybe I'm not incapable of hurting you, but listen to how I'm hurting, and maybe you don't do it again. And you teach empathy to children because empathy may not be natural. Sympathy, maybe, but empathy, to live in somebody else's mind for a moment and understand completely what that other person is feeling, I think is taught. And you need to teach that. And as a result of that, maybe aspects of bullying would uh, dissipate. Yeah, maybe there could be more empathetic leadership.
for example. Yeah. More empathetic leadership, yes. <laughs> which uh, we'll hopefully get after this upcoming election. Fingers crossed, we'll see. <laughs> um, William Shatner, it has been great talking to you, and I think we'll leave it there because we are almost out of time. And uh, it, Zero G. Yeah, Zero G is the new book. It is really, really interesting and exciting, and it's set in the in 2025. 20, Tons 2050, cool really. Uh, but a, 2050? But it's, Did I get yeah, it wrong? Yeah, no, it's all right. It's, all, oh, it's just a few right. years difference. I'm being empathetic. I'm being an empathetic leader right here. It, don't worry about it. It's all <laughs> right. I understand you made a mistake in 2025, but it's really 2050, but not to worry about it. I'm with you. All right, and let's go toast marshmallows. <laughs> and go toast marshmallows. <laughs> all right. Exactly. Thanks so much for your a time. A pleasure talking to you, Jay. Jason. Pleasure talking to you. And that wraps another episode of Think Again. I know you are busy. I know you have lots of good things to do with your time. Still, if you like our show or love our show, and especially if you're listening regularly and you haven't had a chance to do so yet, I would really appreciate it if you could rate or review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast getting location. Thank you. We are back next week with novelist Jodi Picou, whose new book is a big departure for her. It deals with racism in contemporary America. See you then.